Hi, everybody. We're back with a second episode this week because there's been a little bit of breaking news, this uh, little indictment that came down in Florida. This episode for you as a free subscriber is almost half an hour long. Uh, Ken and I talk about the various charges, the 38 counts that have been brought against Donald Trump, what sort of uh, legal exposure he faces on those. It is not hundreds of years in jail, as I've seen some reporters say is the possible maximum sentence. Uh, But this would be real time if he's convicted. And uh, Ken talks about the unusual strength of this indictment, that if he were a federal prosecutor, he would feel, frankly, cocky going into court with this fact pattern against a normal defendant. But of course, Donald Trump is not a normal defendant. And the situation around this case is likely to not be normal either. So I'm going to tell you now, the paywall uh, is about halfway through the episode. You get half an hour. Uh, For the paying subscribers, there's a full hour because there is so much for us to cover on this topic. Uh, And behind that paywall, I'm telling you now so you don't get mad when you hit it later, is where we mostly talk about Judge Eileen Cannon. Uh, who you you will recall from her sort of bizarrely favorable rulings to Donald Trump when he sued trying to get these documents back from the federal government. She at least initially has been handed this case. Her name is right there at the top of the filing that this is going before her. Um, It's not completely certain that it's going to stay in her courtroom, but that's, you know, that's the big elephant in the room here. So Ken and I talk about what that could mean for the disposition of this case and what options the government has in terms of getting itself into a more favorable courtroom. Uh, For paying subscribers, Ken and I also talk about the latest shakeup in the former president's legal team. Two of his prominent attorneys uh, for his criminal matters, including this one, resigned on Friday literally just hours after one of them had appeared on both Good Morning America and the Today Show to present the president's public defense. So that is an odd shakeup. He is looking for new Florida representation, even though he already hired one really big gun in Florida. And so we're going to talk about what that means for the president's chances in this case and how he differs from a normal defendant in terms of what it means when a bunch of his attorneys resign immediately after he gets indicted. So anyway, big news, big conversation. There's a reason that we recorded for a full hour. And if you want to hear that full hour, Go to SeriousTrouble.show. You can upgrade, become a paying subscriber for $6 a month or $60 a year. I don't think there's going to be any sort of slowdown in the amount of serious trouble there is for us to cover. I think you're going to want to hear that episode, and I think you're going to want to hear every full episode. We actually put out 49 episodes in our first year. I've been saying 48, but this is a 49th right under the wire before we hit the one-year anniversary. So anyway, I hope that you will join us over there on the uh, the fun side of the paywall. But in case not, uh, here is uh, this week's free version of the show for the second time. Thank you. Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, this is the second time this week that we are recording an episode of the podcast. Is this an emergency podcast? Well, Josh, I wouldn't say that because it gets you agitated, because it's your point quite forcefully made that there is inherently no such thing as an emergency podcast, that that's like a a heavy feather. (laughs) If you are suffering an emergency, the last thing that you should be reaching for is a podcast. And yet here we are. This is a special extra podcast, a a bonus podcast, if you will. Uh, And Ken, why are we recording twice in the same week? Well, uh, we're recording because for the second time this year, former President Donald Trump has been indicted, this time uh, by a federal grand jury in Florida, arising from his uh, retention, allegedly, of classified documents. Yeah, you, I, I don't know if you, you got, listeners have heard about this little indictment, but uh, there was an indictment that, that came down this Friday. Donald Trump made it made a little bit of news. Big boy federal felonies. 
absolute big boy federal felonies actually got enough news to push Taylor Swift off the front page. But (laughs) so 38 counts. And that's not this time entirely gratuitous because a lot of those counts describe particular classified documents that Trump allegedly improperly retained and a uh, range of the sort of uh, charges that everyone was predicting out of this investigation. And perhaps the only surprise is that along with uh, the former president of the United States, uh, a heavy favorite to be president of the United States again, formerly the most powerful man in the world, also charged is his valet, uh, Waltine Nauta. Well, so I'm, the the indictment of valet Waltine Nauta is a surprise and, you know, poor guy. But I mean, I, I think the other big surprise looking at this is some of the evidence that the government has. We, we talk a lot uh, on this show about the high bars to demonstrate intent if you're trying to prove certain crimes, especially the sort of crimes you might commit in a business suit. And you were going to have to show that the, the president, the former president, knew that he was retaining classified documents. You might have to show that he knew that they were still classified and that he had not declassified them with his mind without telling anyone before he left office. Um, but they have some quotes on a tape uh, from a, a, a meeting that the former president had in July of 2021, where he's waving around some document. And he says, as president, I could have declassified it. Now I can't, you know, but this is still a secret. So that's like, I, I was not expecting to see such clear statements uh, that seem to go directly to the ordinarily quite difficult things about his state of mind that the government might need to prove. Yeah, I like the part where he says someone shouldn't get too close to the document uh, because it's classified. <laughs> Josh, this is actually professionally extremely helpful to me because I'm always on the lookout for topical cautionary tales to show clients to explain why I mean in the kindest possible way, shut the fuck up forever. Uh, And this will demonstrate why you need not to run your mouth about things, because this just shows Trump in absolutely classic Trump fashion, uh, like a Greek tragedy, being himself and talking himself into heavy proof of corrupt intent and willfulness. Yeah. And we know about this. I mean, I, th- there had been some news reports about that that tape over the last couple of days, but a lot of the the evidence that we're we're seeing uh, with this indictment is because this is a speaking indictment. This is an indictment that contains a lot of narrative, more narrative than the government is legally required to provide at this stage of the case, explaining exactly why it is that they believe that Donald Trump can be proved to have committed the various offenses that they're charging him with. Right. This tells a story. Uh, And, you know, federal indictments are everything from very stripped down than a few sentences per charge to extremely lengthy and and even bombastic. So you see everything from sort of the John Durham style, which is reads like, you know, a Fox News uh, news feed and is extremely argumentative and full of adjectives and things like that, uh, way down to bare minimum. This is clipped in terms of being sort of just the facts and not a lot of bombast or adjective, but devastating in its detail. It's what's called an evidentiary pleading in that it narrates the evidence uh, for the ultimate legal claims it makes. And it does it in a way that I think is very effective. I think sort of the spare clipped nature is much more effective than Durham or even than Mueller, who sometimes could be a little long-winded in his indictments. This just is is sort of a Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, lays out 
what happened, but just those facts are really, really bad for Trump. So I think we should lay out a little bit of that story, um, because that's going to flow into the various 38 counts that were brought against the president here. But so the thumbnail sketch of this is, you know, as as Trump is leaving office, they box up various personal effects documents of his from the White House, and they take them down to Mar-a-Lago. And there's this ongoing process with the National Archives, where you're supposed to turn over documents that are property of of the federal government. And they were having difficulty getting full cooperation from Donald Trump on on that. And there comes a point uh, where they they have these, these documents down in, in Florida and they've received a subpoena asking for any documents that have classified markings. And Trump meets with his lawyers and basically tells them, well, wouldn't it be good if, you know, why, why can't we just tell them we don't have anything? Wouldn't it be good if we didn't find any of these documents? Or just didn't cooperate. Um, or just, or, you know, can we just not cooperate at all? And then eventually they they set up a time, you know, it's like a, a couple of weeks later, a week and a half later, one of the attorneys, a, a Trump attorney won in the charging document. We know that that is Evan Corcoran, uh, that he's going to come down in about a week and a half to Mar-a-Lago and go through these boxes of documents and find the ones that are responsive to the subpoena. And so prior to that, Trump has his valet, Walt Nauta, move the boxes of documents around. He's already been moving them around to various storage places in Mar-a-Lago, into a bathroom, onto the stage in a ballroom. But at this point, they bring the documents up to the former president so the former president can go through them. And they send about 60 boxes up to his residence, and only 30 of them come back to be searched uh, by Evan Corcoran when he comes down there. So Evan Corcoran goes through the boxes, finds a few dozen that have uh, classified markings. He hands those over to an FBI agent, and he prepares a statement that is ultimately given by Christina Bob, Trump attorney three uh, in the filing, that says, you know, based on information provided to me, there was a diligent search, and these are all the responsive documents, and we found them. Uh, and then the government reviews surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago and, and sees the, the moving of this, the boxes. And that is what ultimately leads to the raid on Mar-a-Lago last August, where they go and they search various locations in the president's residence there and in his office and, and that bathroom and various other places. And they find more than 100 additional documents with classified markings. Um, but that wasn't all of them, because as we learned in this indictment, Trump took some of those documents with him to New Jersey, to his club in Bedminster, which is his summer residence. Uh, and some of the, uh, the the accounts in here of the president showing documents to people take place at Bedminster rather than at Mar-a-Lago. So in any case, they find the documents during the, the raid. They end up interviewing many Mar-a-Lago employees. And ultimately, the government built this case uh, that Trump willfully retained all of these documents, uh, despite the fact that he knew that they were classified, and that he sought to obstruct justice in various ways, including hiding the documents from his attorney who was going to search through them, causing one of his attorneys to make false statements to the government and various other such things. Is that a, is that a fair uh, short description of the, of the behavior described here, Ken? It is. A couple of interesting things to note about this. First of all, this is classic federal prosecutorial practice where you are combining a lot of different types of evidence and corroboration. So you're not only getting Trump's history of talking about how important uh, the Espionage Act and how important classified documents are, you're getting his admissions about the nature of these documents, you're getting uh, contemporaneous written communications about what's going on, you're getting testimony, you're getting pictures, you're getting all these different types of things and adding it together. The other interesting thing to note uh, right away is that, you know, there was a narrative during this investigation since the search that maybe the attorneys were going to be 
charged. Maybe the attorneys were involved. Maybe the attorneys would be flipped as cooperators. This much more seems to suggest the attorneys were being duped by Trump. Um, maybe sort of semi-voluntarily, maybe not. But it, it seems to be he's basically hiding stuff from Evan Carker. And, and, and this is kind of consistent with what attorneys have said about him in the past, is that he very begrudgingly takes their advice and does what they want, um, but may not sort of openly defy them, may not just say, screw you, I'm not turning over the documents, but he may sort of hint that's what he's doing and he may hide it from them. There's a great part I love here. One of the many factual details in here that is just meant to be vivid, where Corcoran describes Trump after, you know, even though he's hidden all these boxes from him, attorney one, he still finds some classified documents in the boxes he left there. And he comes <laughs> back with his red well of classified documents and and he's talking to Trump and Trump is saying, can't you just, you know, and apparently he makes like this grabbing and throwing away gesture. <laughs> so you have to manage, you have to imagine this tiny little elfin hand um, grabbing a post-it note and, and hurling it several inches away. And uh, kind of obviously sort of signaling again, wouldn't this be better if this just all disappeared someplace? Yeah, which, which Evan Corcoran didn't do. I mean, and also there, it, it's clear. So in terms of the evidence that the government put together in order to build this narrative, uh, obviously, you have the documents that they seized. There are certain text communications, whether those are email or text messages or whatever, including in one instance, a photograph of various classified documents spilled out from a box all over the floor. Uh, and they they note you know this that one of the documents that's visible in this picture that's charged in count eight, but then you also have testimony from various people, including testimony from those attorneys, and that goes back into some stuff that we've been talking about over the last few months, where they were able to pierce the attorney-client privilege here. Clearly, they were, and uh, we're assuming how that happened. Uh, likely, there was a ruling someplace by a judge, likely in D.C. Uh, that the crime fraud exception applied to some of these communications. Uh, and that applies when you consult an attorney for the purpose of furthering a crime or a fraud, then the communication is not privileged. And it's likely these attorneys did not reveal this information and that uh, the government did not get the written communications with attorneys before a federal judge made that finding. And it, I mean, there's nothing in here suggesting that the attorneys participation was enthusiastic or on the line of like cooperation where I'm going to tell you everything because otherwise I'm getting charged. It just doesn't have that tone. It has more the tone of being forced to testify by a federal judge and even, you know, as neutral a description as possible is terribly incriminating. But it, it also seems like these attorneys uh, took care to avoid breaking the law themselves and also took care to take notes. I mean, you know, they, they have these contemporaneous notes of these conversations with Trump describing Trump making that picking motion with regard to the file, for example. So it doesn't, it seems like these attorneys, while they weren't enthusiastically cooperating with the government, it also seems like they were acting to protect themselves at each turn and that they were, you know, they, they weren't willing to put themselves at risk for the protection of Donald Trump in this case. Absolutely. They were not going to go under the bus. Uh, you know, yeah. like my longtime managing partner always says, remember at the end of the day, not to be the one going to jail. <laughs> that, is a, that, is, that is a good plan. Yes. <laughs> 
Um, and that was also, I mean, and, and some of this had, had come out in news reports over the prior months. There was also that when Christina Bob made that declaration about how they had done this diligent search and found all the documents that were responsive to the subpoena, that she insisted on adding this line to the declaration that the declaration was based on information provided to her. That is, she is not even really swearing herself to any of this. She's just swearing that she was told that this had been done, which was true. Yeah. I mean, reading between the lines here, I think what this conveys to a knowledgeable audience is, yeah, these attorneys knew what was going on. They knew perfectly well, but they have plausible deniability. Right. Did they behave correctly here? Is that what they should have done in this position, in this representation, or should they have resigned? Depends on how clearly uh, they knew that they were making a misrepresentation or participating in a fraud. So that's not a clear line. I mean, you're not supposed to be judge, jury, and executioner of your own client. And the line, when do you know with sufficient certainty that your client is doing something wrong, is not like a bright line. Okay. Uh, well, let's talk about the specifics of some of these charges, because, again, the intent thing is so important here. Let's talk about exactly what the government is going to have to prove in this case that it's bringing. So for the first 31 counts are under the Espionage Act. They are about uh, the retention, the unauthorized retention of this various national security information. First of all, it, it relates to 31 specific documents. And so what are the things the government is going to need to show with regard to those documents? So this is under uh, Section 793E of the Espionage Act, and it's charged as a willfully retaining classified document. So that's the key, that he kept holding on to them and not giving them to someone else, knowing that they were classified and he wasn't entitled to have them. So what the government has to prove here is that these are documents, and it's broader than the modern classification system. It predates it. So it's documents that are related to the national defense uh, or documents related to the national defense that the possessor knows could be used against the United States uh, and so forth. You have to show that you willfully, meaning knowingly and intentionally, retained them, not being entitled to do so. So that's, uh, that's the sort of thing that's proven by statements like, you know, as president, I could have declassified this, but uh, now I can't. And it's still a secret. So, you know, step back from it. Mm -hmm. Will they also need to prove that the documents are related to national security? I mean, is it just, you know, presumptive that if the documents are classified, that they meet that uh, characterization? Or will the jury have to evaluate those documents? Will the jury get to look at these individual documents and sort of make its own assessment of their relevance to the national security? What's well, likely they chose some documents that wouldn't be catastrophic if they have to be published. Uh, but the, the description in the statute is relatively broad. It says relating to the national defense, uh, which information the possessor has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of a foreign nation. So pretty broad language, broader probably even than classified. Uh, you know, but the fact that they're classified and Trump knows they're classified is goes great strides towards meeting that. Does that mean if there's a trial, we're gonna we are gonna get to see all 31 of these documents? So there's some very elaborate procedures you can use in Espionage Act cases to try to do prosecutions without showing the documents. I suspect uh, this is somewhere between an estimate and a guess. I suspect that we're gonna see that they have chosen documents that, if substantial amounts of them are disclosed, will not be harmful to the national defense. But doesn't that undermine the charge itself? I mean, it's an element of the charge that 
the possessor has reason to believe that the documents could be used to the injury of the United States or the advantage of a foreign nation uh, if obtained by someone else. If the government is is choosing to release them publicly, isn't that evidence that, that, that the documents are not, in fact, that damaging? Well, the question is whether they were at the time. So if it's three years later, that could be a very different picture. And it could also be only portions of them. So like if you have this document that apparently shows a war plan against Iran, you could redact the stuff that shows exactly where we're going to bomb, but still have it enough to show it's a war plan against Iran. So I I, what I'm thinking is that um, Jack Smith and, and the attorney general have this very difficult burden here. Uh, they're under intense scrutiny. Uh, you know, history has its eyes on them and they uh, need to do this in a way that has a higher than normal level of public credibility. And it's very clumsy to have to prosecute with remaining classified documents without showing anything that's in them. And it just comes off as kind of skeevy. So mm -hmm. my suspicion is they have chosen things in a way uh, to balance being able to disclose at least portions of it without harming the national security. And then the willfulness, that's just, I mean, th that's the statements about knowing that they're classified. And I assume that also the obstruction itself is, is evidence of the willfulness, right? That, you know, he took yes. these steps to hide the documents from his attorneys to ensure that he would retain them in violation of the subpoena. So if, if he had gotten the inquiry from the archives and had someone search and found the classified documents and sent them back, that would have been extremely difficult to show willfulness. Willful means you're knowingly and intentionally keeping them, knowing that they are classified and that you're keeping them. It's, it's almost the same as knowing it's illegal. It's, it's right up to the line of that. So it's a very difficult legal standard. And honestly, Josh, it takes an amazing American, an amazing politician to successfully produce convincing evidence of willfulness uh, just in the course of their normal day-to-day -day activities. And, and that's what sets Trump apart from Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and Mike Pence and the various other officials who we've had these news reports about, you know, they found classified documents somewhere or other after they had left office. It's that, you know, they, they were cooperative or they were apparently cooperative and they, well, I'm, let's set Hillary's email server aside, but the, the Biden and, uh, and Pence cases, certainly, you know, they, they look very different because of the, you know, to the extent they had documents, they worked with the government to get them back. Right. Well, at least we have not heard any evidence that with Biden or Pence, that there was any indication that they deliberately hid them or did things suggesting they were trying to prevent them from being disclosed. Yeah. And so then you, in addition to those 31 counts related to the retention of those documents, you have sort of conspiracy and obstruction counts. There are six of them. Uh, against Trump, some of those also against his valet, Walt Nauta. And then there is a false statement count just against Nauta. Right. So you've got conspiracy to obstruct justice at Section 1512K, where uh, the two of them try to uh, persuade Evan Corcoran not to turn things over, try to hide things from him to obstruct the investigation. Um, you have... Uh, corruptly withholding a record, again, uh, both by deceiving Corcoran and causing these false statements to be made, corruptly concealing, uh, concealing a document in a federal investigation, all these sort of general obstruction of justice type things just expressed in different ways. The core factor of all of them is corrupt intent, which is normally mm -hmm. extremely difficult to prove. Uh, here, <laughs> let's just say Trump has been extremely helpful in that regard. Yeah. And then the 
the false statements count against Trump is when he caused Christina Bob to make that false certification. The false statement count against Nauta has to do with him being interviewed by the FBI and apparently lying to the FBI about what he did with all of these boxes of documents, which like you should not do on behalf of your boss. I realize Nauta is not a lawyer, which is maybe why he made this mistake. But just as your attorney should not be the one to end up in jail, that's also true if you're the valet. Yeah, Josh, there's no valet exception to the shut the fuck up rule. Um, So (laughs) I guarantee you that at the moment the FBI agents interviewed Nauta, they already had the text messages showing that he was lying to them as he was talking to them uh, because that's the way they roll. Uh, and they probably crafted the questions in a way to lead him further and further into something that was clearly a lie, not plausibly being mistaken. So that's why you don't talk to the FBI. What do you make of the decision to charge Nauta here? Is this, are they trying to flip him so that he will testify? Do they need his testimony? I don't think they need his testimony. It would be kind of icing on the cake. I'm sure they would like his testimony. And this will be kind of a sore spot because, you know, Trump is going to be probably funding a lawyer for Nauta. And that creates all sorts of conflicts and and problems. It would certainly be in Nauta's best interest to cooperate and reduce his sentence, most likely, because just the contrast between his text messages and what he said to the FBI is terrible for him. Uh, (laughs) So I think they would be perfectly happy to get a cooperator. I think they threw him in there for sort of color because he helps tell the story to show they're not just going after Trump. And because sometimes you, if you if you lie to an FBI agent's face on the wrong day, you just piss them off and they just, just you know, screw this guy, I'm charging you. Is it also, I mean, if you're going to charge Trump with conspiracy, is it helpful to charge somebody else also for participating in the conspiracy? You can't have a conspiracy of one. Helpful, but not necessary. It's routine to charge people with conspiracy and just say, you know, with specified people or with unspecified people, as long as you can prove the conspiracy, which is an agreement with another person to commit a specified crime, then then you can do it. You don't have to have multiple defendants. So what is Trump's overall exposure here? Is this, a, first of all, is this a strong case? Does this look like a case that if you were a federal prosecutor, you would be confident bringing it into court? Yes. If it were someone other than Trump, if you take out the Trump political X factor, I would be overconfident. I would be over the top arrogant, even for a federal prosecutor. Um, <laughs> with Trump, of course, it's an X factor. He's there's no one like him. Uh, you wouldn't be confident, particularly not in Florida, particularly maybe not with the judge they draw. Uh, but yes. if you have to go against Trump, this is the case you want. Let's put it that way. And. That's rough news for Trump because as, as Stephen Dennis, a reporter from Bloomberg, tweets, the, the maximum sentence, if he's convicted on all of these counts, is hundreds of years in prison. Josh, yes? do not bait me. Do not troll me, Josh. What? what? Joshua, That's a lot. I know your mother's number. I will call her. So, <laughs> so, yes, of course, if you add together all the statutory maxima for all these statutes, it's some big, ridiculous number. That's not how it works, though. Remember, Federal sentences are calculated using United States federal sentencing guidelines. It's like filling out a tax return, more or less, only only somewhat more glamorous. Uh, and <laughs> he does not face hundreds of years, uh, not by any 
remote plausible stretch. However, even under the guidelines, which are just recommendations to the federal judge, all those Espionage Act counts, if he gets convicted of them, I mean, the recommended sentence is absolutely federal prison time. I mean, I, I took a very rough look, and I think it starts before you get start getting creative with ad additions, you know, between five and 10 years in, in federal wow. prison. And I think if, you know, so it's real time. And that's before you start getting too cute about just how classified are they? How much did he know they could harm the country? Did he, uh, you know, obstruction of justice enhancement? So you were definitely talking about something where plausibly there is substantial jail time. And then when when you were doing those sorts of enhancements where you talk about, you know, what, what the person knew about how damaging they could be, am I right to assume that in general, a more senior official will be looked upon less favorably in that calculation than a more junior one? They should know better. Oh, absolutely. There is no official more senior than the president. Correct. And I mean, there are specific guideline provisions for abuse of a position of trust uh, and things like that. And any judge is going to take into account how high an official this was. So even someone like Donald Trump, who's in his 70s and has no criminal record uh, yet, is starting out worrying about looking at real serious jail time. So you said this is, you know, if it was if it was a more anonymous defendant, you would be arrogant about how, you know, how strong, open and shut a case this is. It is, of course, like the least anonymous defendant possible. And to a large extent, any question about Donald Trump is a political question and may, may be one for jurors, may also be one for the judge who will preside over this case. And so because of that, I think a lot of people were surprised that this case got brought in Florida. Uh, bringing it in Florida also created the risk of, of something that we'll talk about in a moment, which is the case getting assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon. Um, who had uh, handled a related matter where Trump sued trying to get these documents returned to him. And she made some really head-scratchingly favorable rulings toward him, got really smacked down on an appeal to the 11th Circuit. Um, she was appointed to the bench by Trump himself in 2020. Um, but so I, the, the question a lot of people are asking is, why did the Justice Department bring this case in the Southern District of Florida? It's a good question. And I think it is because of the way they chose to charge it. That's the end of this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. As I described uh, at the front of this episode, there's another approximately half hour of conversation between Ken and me breaking down the Eileen Cannon situation, which is really, you know, the, the key to the government's ability to obtain a conviction, what would otherwise look like, a, as Ken says, a, you know, a really, really strong case. And so we'll talk about what that could mean uh, and what you should make of statements that you may have been seeing on Twitter about how the government has ways uh, to get her off this case, that, you know, if she decides that she does want to preside over this, you see, for example, Joyce Vance, uh, a former U.S. attorney from the Obama administration, saying, oh, the, the government will be able to appeal and the 11th Circuit will take Eileen Cannon off and put somebody else on the case. Uh, Ken and I talk about what the prospects for an appeal like that would be and, and how it would work. We also talk about the president's uh, new lawyers or his new lawyers to be named later and about the two attorneys um, who resigned quite abruptly on Friday morning, uh, literally hours after one of them was appearing on television presenting the president's public defense. Uh, so uh, I hope uh, I hope you will go to SeriousTrouble.show, become a paying member for $6 a month or $60 a year, uh, and then you'll get that full episode and every full episode that we put out over the next year, more than 40 episodes. Uh, given our 49-episode pace in the first year, I think uh, you'll be looking at more than 40 again in the second year. But again, I, I encourage you to join us over there uh, because we have so much to say to you. Thank you. Thank you.